Well, good morning. As uh, most of you know, my name is Sam, and I have the joy of preaching today. Um, as Chris already said, uh, later this morning we're going to be holding our uh, first morning service in Snohomish. And uh, the building, if you haven't been down there, uh, it's um, original, um, historic building, uh, timber frame built in 1882. And so uh, it's got a musty 1882 smell to it. Um, but in its 131 years of existence, uh, it's functioned as a, a general store and a livery and a Pontiac car lot and uh, I think a restaurant at one point, and a pool hall. And this morning it's going to function as a worship space. And I don't know if you knew, but this building also used to be a hardware store, grocery store, beauty salon, and a bunch of other weird things. Uh, But this morning we're here worshiping in a building that the constructor, whoever built it, probably didn't plan for worship service to be happening. So that's pretty cool. Um, and so, because it's the first morning, if you will, in Snohomish, um, we want it to be a memorable thing. It's, it is a memorable uh, experience. There's only a few firsts that you have. Uh, and knowing it's the first time where we're going to worship on a Sunday morning with the presence of God is a pretty awesome thing. We want to remember all of that. What we didn't want to remember was it to be the first time that we preached a sermon about tongues. So, we're going to put that on pause for a second, and uh, we're supposed to be in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians this week, but we're going to take chapter 14 and start that next week, and instead we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you turn to 15, we're going to be in what is a foundational text for all of Christianity, and a classic, and I should say a central text for this letter to the Corinthians. Um, the church in Corinth, as, as I've said, is, is only like five or six years old. Very similar to our own church. We'll be seven in November. And when the church, or any church, is first planted, when things are new, and when things are simple, and when it's easy to kind of keep things uh, simplistic and, and, and just kind of base level, it's easy at that point to keep what we would consider the important things important. But in time, what happens to a church plant is it becomes, you know, a church. And it naturally grows up, and it naturally becomes older, it naturally becomes larger and more complex, just like a body does. And as it grows, every church that starts as a plant, which is every church, uh, it eventually develops kind of its own personality, like a kid. Right? You go, wow, I just didn't see what the kind of person that was. And it de- develops its own rhythms and its own traditions and all these things that kind of make it what it is, the flavor of the body that it is. And the danger is, if you're not careful, those things, those rhythms and that personality and those traditions can actually become the things. They can actually become more important than what the Bible says is most important. And so there are many things in the house of the Lord that will change. But there are some things that should never change. And so if you're thinking about the house of the Lord, the Bible uses that as a description of the church. 
If we think figuratively about houses, right, there's lots of things you can change in a house. You can change the paint. You can change the carpet. You can buy new furniture and put new pictures on the wall. And, and you can even remove a wall or two if it's the right wall, uh, or add a wall or two and make another room. There's lots of things you can do to the house of God. But the foundation probably shouldn't change. You don't change the foundation of a house. You build upon that foundation because if you begin to stray from that foundation, then things go a little cuckoo and become destructive and maybe not even safe or healthy. And so for our family in Snohomish, this text is really a foundational beginning. And for our campus here in Marysville, it's a reminder of what our foundation is so that we don't forget or we don't replace those things that are most important with those things that aren't. Because we all come to church determining in our own mind missions according to our personal preferences. The things we want every church to have. The things that a good church should do. Where's your youth program? What kind of music do you have? Blah, 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 all these things. Nothing is wrong with those things until they become the most important thing. And when they become the most important thing, you have ceased to be a biblical church. So, we're beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15. Again, if you want to memorize a passage in this letter, these first 11 verses of chapter 15 are a great place to start. I mean that for adults and for kids as well. It says this, Paul speaking, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let's stop there. We are here, you are here for those who believe, because someone preached you the gospel. Might have been a parent, might have been a friend, might have been a pastor, might have been a TV evangelist. At some point, you heard the gospel preached, and God took those words and changed your life. Maybe you know the person that spoke the words. Maybe you've forgotten who that is. But Paul wants to remind the Corinthians where it all started. In Acts chapter 18 is the record of a lot of churches being birthed, including uh, Corinth in chapter 18. Paul arrived in Corinth by himself, and the first thing he did was find a place to live and get a job. He made tents. The second thing he did was preach. And he we see as we look in chapter 18, he didn't go into the city and you know, put up a bouncy house and invite all the kids to come play. He didn't host a really cool, folksy music concert, which I'm sure would have been the hit in Corinth. He didn't organize a 5K for Jesus. He didn't start a soup kitchen to feed the homeless. That's not where it began. He walked into the city. He found where people naturally gathered. And he proclaimed the news of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Unapologetically, simply, and boldly. According to 1 Corinthians 2, which we've already 
already visited, here's what Paul said his methods and message were. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's all He did. He came and preached Jesus. He came and preached one message, and this one message was received by a people who you would never expect to receive it. A people who, as we already read, even the Christians are immoral. The Corinthians were demon worshipers. The Corinthians were sex-crazed sinners. It was a dark place. And Paul walks straight in, doesn't try to convince them of anything, just proclaims the good news, and this one message changed them completely. This one message he's telling them is the reason your church exists. This one message is what saved them. This one message, he said, is what is going to continue to change them. He says, being saved. If they actually trusted in Jesus in the first place. That's a pretty strong statement. And the reason Paul says that is because anyone can call themselves a Christian. And there are a lot of people who do. There's a ton of people who do. Some here, you call yourself a Christian and you're not. I'm not judging you. I didn't say a name. But some of you, it's true. Many people who are active members of churches, dare I say, even some pastors, have believed in vain, as Paul said. Have believed in vain. There are people who hear about Jesus. There are people that speak about Jesus. There are people that even do things in the name of Jesus. But the truth is, they believed in vain. Somehow, they maybe have even believed the gospel with their heads, but they have not received them with their hearts. Their salvation, for those who have believed in vain, is, is little more than, than membership in a club with some, let's be honest, pretty lame rules. Right? If you're going to join a club, probably not the number one one a pagan is going to sign up for. But people do. If you look at their lives, very little has really changed to distinguish them other than the fact they put a Christian label on themselves. But to distinguish them from the world in any way, we go, hey, you look pretty much the same. That's a Corinthian. Paul says, look, you guys got the Christian label. Fantastic. You live absolutely no differently. With not a different value system, not even different language, not even different worship services. This one message, Paul says, changes everything. Because this one message comes with the news that something major has changed. This message declares so many things. Okay, this one message declares where we came from. This one message declares what is wrong with me, and this message declares what's wrong with the world. Because everyone knows something's wrong with the world. They, you don't, you're a fool to not admit that. This message declares how things are going to be put right. This message declares how I'm going to be put right. So you can't just have a so-so response to this message because if this message, this one message he's going to lay out in such detail is, is true, then it changes who I am. It 
changes why I'm here. It tells me what my relationship to others should be like and how I should live. It tells me everything. You can't just go, eh, I guess I'll be a Christian. No! It transforms you. See, the Gospel is not about something we do. It's about something that has been done for us. And the Gospel is not just good advice. Right? For those of you who have come and think, well, Christianity is just like you know, living really a good life, and you're wrong! Christianity is the idea, I can't live a good life. That Jesus is the only one that did. See, Christianity is supposed to be these Christians that come and say, yep, I'm one of the few that admit I cannot save myself. That's Christianity. The Gospel is good news announcing, quite frankly, that we've been rescued. That we've been rescued. The Gospel is the news that Jesus Christ of Nazareth has put things right in our relationship with God. So the Gospel, if you've wondered, we use the Gospel a lot. We say the Gospel a lot. And you go, I don't even know what the Gospel is. Well, lucky you. You get it every Sunday and today as well. Okay? But today is so explicit. Right? Let me be clear. As, as If you're an adult who goes, I don't even know. I, I, I don't know if I can say the Gospel. Okay, this is for you. If you have kids, you want to teach your kids, what is the Gospel? Here we go. The Gospel is basically a report of historical fact, the historical work of Jesus that was predicted by real men, that was witnessed by real men, and preached by real men. It really happened. Our faith is not based on being spiritual. You may have read the article about the guy, the interfaith church with his 20 members that's been meeting for like three years, and he walks up to preach with pictures of every religion possible, opens up the Koran, the Bible, and every other book you can imagine, and goes, let's be spiritual. The Bible is very clear that, and this is the Corinthians' problem, they want to be spiritual. Paul's saying, you're Faith is rooted in historical fact and the person and work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Don't forget that. There is only one name given under heaven by which men can be saved, and that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Does that mean all roads don't lead to God? That's exactly what it means. It means there's only one road. That means there's salvation, no one else. What about done? They're out. That seems very insensitive. Well, that's what Jesus taught. That there is one God. That there is one Lord. And there's one name. So here's, in verse 3, what Paul says. This is, you want to say, what is our church about? What do we like? What's my life about? Here we go. Verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you, Corinthians, as of first importance... What is the most important thing at Damascus Road? The Gospel. What is the most important thing in my life? The Gospel. More than family? Yes. More than my job? Yes. More than money? Yes. More than my life? Yes. 
Can you say that? Because if you can't, you're putting more faith in something else to save you other than Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, that thing is going to burn up one day and Jesus ain't ever. First importance, what I also received, colon, okay, what does that mean? Because my English teacher, right? The colon is, this is what I received, all this stuff, okay, here we go. That Christ, the Messiah, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. The Gospel is not something Paul invented. He was not even taught it, though I'm sure he heard it from eyewitnesses. It says in Galatians 1.12, he received it directly from Jesus Christ. And he deliver it, or delivered what he received to others, Paul's saying. This is what Christians do. You received a message. Some of you received it years ago. And some of you may have received it even within the last couple years. And my question is, have you ever delivered it to anybody? It was not supposed to stop with you. It is not supposed to stop with this church. Because one day, we're all going to be dead. And this church may not exist, but the message will continue. And they dare not stop with us. So Paul received it, and he delivered it. And the Corinthians received it, and they are to deliver it. In Damascus Road, you've received it, and you are to deliver it to somebody, to many bodies. These historical facts about the historical Jesus of Nazareth establish our faith. This one message is the most important, most powerful, most amazing thing that Paul says we've been entrusted with do something with. So as such, Paul wants to be very careful. This is where he lays out exactly what he preached to him. Why? Because it's not his message. He's taking what he received and goes, okay guys, this is what I preached to you. Exactly. Reminds you. And so he lays it out so clearly. Okay, so we're just going to go break it down. This is the gospel. It's basically three parts. I made it into five parts for my kids. One of the gospel kids, boom, 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 boom. And it doesn't start with, God has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not where it starts, for those who have been in church too long. First thing Paul says, Christ died for our sins. Wow, that's only like five words, but I could preach an entire sermon on those five words. Many sermons. First, the news. We talk about the news is pretty dark. Christ died for our sins. Here's what we believe. If you're a Christian, this is what you believe. As Damascus Road, this is what we believe. If you do not believe this, you're not a Christian, and I compel, I'm pleading with you to believe. But this is it. We believe that the eternal Son of God, worthy of all worship, emptied Himself and came into this world in the flesh 
as Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a humble servant. And we know because he died, he lived. In fact, he lived for 33-ish years, sinlessly. Sinlessly. Why is that important? Oh, you'll learn. That's important. After 33 years of sinless life, he sacrificially died. He did not die as a guilty criminal, nor did he die as a helpless victim. He willingly died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. And it wasn't Christ died for their sins. He died for our sins. Well, that seems to imply quite a few things. Oh, you bet it does. It implies that we are sinners. People won't talk about sin these days. Guess what? We're bad. We're evil. We're depraved. We're broken. We're sinners. We stink on every level, in every way. Sin has affected every aspect of our lives. We cannot save ourselves, right? Some people believe that sin is just like a bruise, a little bit of sickness, like I fell off a building and I'm just kind of hurt. Let me tell you, you fell off a skyscraper and you are goo. That is what I believe. That is what sin has done to men. It's not just a cold (coughs) that I can get over. It's devastated us. Because we are sinners, that means I must be guilty. That's right, we're guilty. And we are condemned to die under God's wrath. But by grace, Jesus, the second Adam, because the first Adam is when sin came into the world. But through the second Adam, we are rescued by taking our place and dying the death we deserve. And because He died for our sins, this is what I know. My sins, our sins, are forgiven. I'm no longer guilty in Christ. I am innocent. I'm no longer condemned. The Bible says in Christ there's no condemnation. So, I want Christ to die, but I want Him to die for my sins because I know that I'm a sinner deserving of death. We believe that. He goes on. He says this phrase constantly, according to the Scriptures. Right? Why does He say according to the Scriptures after all these statements? Well, because the news is expected and the claims for this are very old. See, the Scriptures He refers to are the Old Testament. And in Luke 24, a resurrected Jesus walking with a couple guys gives them a history lesson to say, let me tell you how the whole Bible talks about how this is going to happen, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible. That being the Old Testament. So from Genesis to Malachi, right? The old, really, what's Malachi's in there? It is, right? The Old Testament. That's all about Jesus. Pointing to Jesus. Passages like Isaiah 53, go ahead and read that. And you read that trying to explain it in any other way than Jesus. In other words, God predicted this would all happen from the beginning. God's anointed Savior was the promised seed in the Garden of Eden. He was the promised prophet to Moses. He was the promised king to David. He was the promised suffering servant to Isaiah. Jesus, 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 according to the Scriptures, it was told a long time ago. 
This is not a new news story. It is a very old story that goes back to the very beginning of time. This news story didn't begin 2,000 years ago. It began in the Garden of Eden when our Creator put our first two parents down there and they said, we want to go our own way rather than follow you. That's where it started. And that's why it applies to everybody. It says, Christ was buried. So we have Christ dying for our sins. Christ was buried. That seems kind of, you know, you're repeating yourself. No, this is important. Why? We need to know the news is certain. We do not believe that Jesus just passed out on the cross. We do not believe he faked his death because he was just getting too famous. We believe that Jewish leaders condemned him illegally. A Roman governor sentenced him and professional soldiers executed him. That's what we believe. And we believe after many hours of torture, he hung on a cross until a Roman soldier pushed a spear in his side and water and blood poured out to show that his heart had literally burst. He was dead, dead. Jesus Christ of Nazareth died. His body was taken down from the cross. He was buried in a marked tomb of a rich man. Everyone knew where it was. We want Jesus dead. Jesus was dead, dead. There can be no new life unless there is a complete death of the old. And we need certainty that Jesus died in the tomb so that when the tomb is empty, it is that much more meaningful. I say it's meaningful at all. Christ died for our sins. We're sin and we're broken. We need a Savior. Yes, Christ died for our sins. He was buried in a tomb. Heck yes, He was. And then, oh, the unparalleled news, right? Because the news was dark. It was certain He was dead. But then suddenly, holy schmoly, Snarf Burger USA, what happened? Jesus Christ was raised on the third day. Now Paul, in this whole chapter, his whole point in chapter 15 is to prove the resurrection. And we will revisit that. We'll get back to it. We'll finish 15. But here's what we believe. You want to know what identifies a Christian than any other religion? The leader of our faith is still alive. There you go. I've had argument upon argument all kinds of intellectual, rational things with people, and the bottom line I come down to is, what are you going to do with Jesus? What do you mean? Did he rise from the dead or not? We believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's not just alive in our minds. He's alive. God the Father raising Jesus from the dead proves many things. proves that God's wrath is, guess what? Satisfied. It proves that justice has been served for my sin, for our sin. It proves that sin and Satan and death have been overcome. I have nothing to fear. In fact, I have everything to hope in. We believe that Jesus Christ is living right now. He's enthroned right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And from there, He is ruling, He is commanding, He is mediating for me, He is restoring, and He is continuing to reconcile all of creation to Himself. Jesus Christ is alive. You tell yourself that over and over and over and over and over again. Your Lord is alive. He is not some dead religious leader whose grave you can find. He is the one religious leader whose grave you can't find. 
right? You take a map of Jesus and they'll be like, I think it's here, 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 here. Why? Because there's no body. He rose from the dead. But then I love what Paul says. He just gave the simple facts. You're a sinner, and Christ died for your sin. He was buried, and he rose again to give you new life. And then he goes, you want me to prove it? He's like, I already proved it from the Old Testament. They've been talking about this for centuries. He's like, let me prove it. What did you say? Christ appeared. This is so cool. We're talking about history. This news was well known. The Corinthians are only, think about this, they're only 20 years removed from the event. But already the report of Christ is moving into legend. After 20 years. It's been several thousand years now. And you talk to the average person around here and they go, yeah, Jesus is a great teacher and stuff. What about the resurrection? Oh, that's just kind of, disciples kind of made that up maybe. Resurrection is still equally difficult. But Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is not some imaginary thing. And his final proof, Paul reminds them, Jesus had 40 days, 40 days worth of appearances that Jesus made after his resurrection. 40 days. He appears to Peter, his best friend, one of his best friends, and he forgives him for denying him. He appears to his 12 disciples, his friends who had all abandoned him. He appears to this awesome to more than 500 brothers. Now, notice what he says, at one time. So he says a couple things. First of all, you know, meet with one guy. Peter comes, yeah, Peter, you're forgiven, sure, whatever. You really screwed up, dude, right? It's easy to deny that. But before 500 people at one point, most, Paul says, are still alive. In other words, go ask them. Go talk to them. Then he appears to his half-brother James, who, guess what, at this point was not a believer. He thought his brother just died a tragic death. But guess what happened to James after he met the resurrected Jesus? Oh, bro, I was wrong. He believed, and he died for his faith in his half-brother, who he denied his Lord until one day he saw him raised. And then he says he appeared to the rest of the disciples or the apostles, one of which had to put his finger in his side to be convinced. Same Thomas. We preach the same 2,000-year-old news report that Peter preached, that Paul preached, that Apollos preached, that Augustine preached, that Luther preached, that Calvin preached, that Spurgeon preached, that Whitfield preached, that Moody preached, that Graham preached, that I preached, that you should preach. It's the same message. And it is the only thing with power. And it is the one truth that we've been entrusted and that we've received and are to deliver. Our faith is founded on the eyewitness accounts delivered us to men who delivered to men who delivered to men. And that's what we find out here today. Men who originally felt and heard and saw Jesus face to face. But this is where Paul comes in, and it's, God, Paul, man, the guy is just horribly awesome. These guys are not just mailmen. Paul 
and others, they all experienced grace. Remember, they all abandoned Christ and He came and forgave them. Peter denied Christ. He forgave him. Paul killed Christians. He forgave him. Don't dare tell me there's something you've done that can't be forgiven. God's grace is way bigger than your sin. Paul says, verse 8, last of all, as he says all these appearances, right? Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Like He wasn't in the three-year training program of discipleship with Jesus. He was the guy attacking the church the same year Jesus died and raised. But by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether when it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. That's where you started, Corinth. See, I love the heart of Paul because the Gospel is this report of these historical truths, but they're not just facts. They are truths with the power to transform the most unloving and hopeless of people, which is what Paul was. Paul's own description of himself, right? He says, least of apostles, but then he identifies himself as one untimely born. And literally in the Greek, you know what that means? Literally a lifeless, aborted fetus. Literally. That's how Paul says, this is who I am. Or I was. And it's possible that the people in Corinth, because he had this problem, are the ones that came up with that description. And he basically has been called unworthy. And he says, yep, I agree. I'm the worst. Paul believes he deserves nothing. Or perhaps he believes he deserves worse. And he says anything he has. Even his very breath is the result of God's grace. There's a reason why I put 1 Timothy 1.15 on my arm. I got asked again yesterday at Starbucks, what did that verse mean? And I preached it to him. It is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of which I am the greatest. That's Paul's perspective. And if you don't believe you're the greatest sinner in the room, You don't understand grace. Paul understood grace. See, the change in Paul is is a witness to the transformational power of Jesus Christ. It should give us hope for ourselves. It should give us hope for those right now that we deem hopeless. See, Acts 9 records the story of Saul, the persecutor of the church. This is where we get the name of our church. I thought I'd remind you. See, Saul was originally the name he went by. He was a religious zealot. He was a Bible-thumping fundamentalist who knew his Bible front and back. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. And the same year that Jesus died, Saul went to the authorities, the religious authorities, and he obtained authority to go from house to house and hunt down Christians and terrorize them. 
So he would literally drag men and women from their homes, away from their families, and throw them in prison. And some were killed. He was present at the first effort resulting in the first Christian martyr named Stephen, whose only crime was preaching the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And Paul did all of this in the name of God, which made it even more evil. That's Paul. And the heart and story of Paul, quite frankly, is what I hope is the story of our own church, and that being the hope of anyone who might come in contact with our church or anyone who's a part of our church. See, he traveled to a city called Damascus. He was on a road. And yes, that city still exists today. You hear about it in the news all the time. And it's still a center of conflict. But in Acts 9, he steps on this road and he is hell-bent on finding, imprisoning, and killing people of the way. Christians. And with every step, he gets closer and closer to a meeting he does not expect, does not plan, and unexpectedly who shows up? Jesus. In the middle of the road. And he appears in a light so bright it blinds him, and a voice so powerful it knocks him off his horse. And Paul is sitting there, can't see anything, on the ground, and he says, he hears, why are you persecuting me? And wisely, Paul responds, who are you, Lord? Right? Add Lord. You get knocked off your horse and blinded. Add Lord on the end, just to be sure. Who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus. Changed in a moment. You cannot have a so-so response to Jesus. You're either going to want to kill him, run away, or worship him. And Paul is transformed in that moment. And what he had understood and heard many times with his head, he suddenly received by grace into his heart. And in that moment, Saul, the persecutor of Jesus, the killers of Christians, became Paul, the apostle, the guy that would be beheaded outside of Rome for declaring his faith in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of transformations that we want to see. That's the kind of transformations that we hope for. A man who left a road completely transformed and spent the rest of his life willing to suffer and serve and preach the power of the resurrection, resurrected Jesus Christ. And Paul says, He didn't accomplish more than other apostles, but he claims he did work harder in response to how much grace he'd been given. How much grace have you been given? This is why we exist as a church. This is why we exist. Those simple truths. Declaring a message that is immeasurably different than any other truth you'll hear. We want to see people have unexpected counters with Jesus, be transformed, turn from the sin, and follow on mission. The Damascus Road experience is a story that is one of complete transformation that leads to reformation. Not the other way around. That's not Christianity. 
Christianity isn't, I'm going to have lots of reformation in my life and change my behavior so that I can be transformed. That's not how it works. It's coming face to face with the gospel and news of Jesus Christ, and that changes you, and your behavior begins to change naturally. Damascus Road experience is also an experience in community. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul was aided from the very beginning by other believers. By a guy named Ananias in the city, who God comes to and says, by the way, Paul's coming to town. I need you to pray with him. He's like, what? The guy that's killing Christians? Are you sure about that? What does Ananias do? He obeys. And he's the guy to come and welcome Paul. And he's the guy to take his arms around Paul. And then when Paul basically uh, is, is changed and spends many years studying and learning and, and, and preaching, he wants to go on mission. Who comes alongside of him? Barnabas. In fact, Barnabas went and found him. And as you see and read the book of Acts on Lay, you see there's always a team of fellow workers and friends and different Leaders coming alongside. There's a community working together. Our faith is not individual. We are brought together. and Individuals come in here. They have unexpected meetings with Jesus. And what do we do? We embrace them. We love them. We see them change. And next thing you know, they're going out and planting churches and doing amazing things. The gospel is certainly not everything Jesus wanted us to know. But it is the first thing. It's where it all begins. It is, according to Romans 1.16, the power for salvation. According to the Great Commission, before we teach all that Jesus commanded, which is part of the Great Commission, we are to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And the message is, quite frankly, uh, simple, but the meaning is not. The power to change a heart is not in anyone, including my ability to teach every biblical truth. It's not in my ability to explain every theological nuance. I can't. It's not even in my power to answer every difficult question. I don't have an answer for every question. And you don't have to either. The power to change a heart. The power to transform a city. The power to redeem an entire community lies solely in proclaiming the gospel openly and accurately as a servant who is responsible to preach but not save. Our responsibility is to preach this. And I pray we will. I pray that we will be known as a church, not, I mean, it's great if we have awesome music. It's great if we have great service. It's great if we have kids' programs or different youth things. That's great. But when people say Damascus Road Church, when people say your name, when I die at my funeral, when you die, when our church dies, let them say, that there goes a church, there goes a man, there goes a woman who dedicated their lives to proclaiming the news of Jesus Christ boldly, courageously, unapologetically, and accurately. That's it. I can rest in that. I'll close with a verse that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, written to the same city. He said, Therefore, having this ministry, we have a ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the godless world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus Christ. Jesus' sake. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We're going to take communion now. And I want you to really be thoughtful about it as you take communion because those, this is one of the things we can get caught up in the routine and forget what we're doing. Kind of like singing a familiar song and you forget what you're actually saying and you're just going along with the rhythm. Paul said, by grace, I am what I am. And he also says that the grace that he has received has not been in vain. So as you come up today and you declare that you are one who has received grace, you are one who recognizes what you actually deserve and the incredible grace that God has poured out and blessing and undeserved favor God has shown you. If you are one that has received that and know that, do not let His grace be in vain. You have received something and you have responsibility to deliver it. In whatever way God has equipped you and given you opportunity to deliver it. That's what Christians do. That's what we do. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing in Snohomish. That's what we'll do in Honduras. That's what we'll do in Mexico. That's what we'll do in Arlington. That's what we'll do when we go to coffee. That's what we'll do with Winco. That's what we'll do with gas. We'll go everywhere. Or, as Chris had the opportunity, when guys who are Muslim deliver your chairs. We preach the gospel at every opportunity, knowing that it might be our last. And we stand before the Lord saying, I did all I could with every opportunity I had to the best of my ability. He says, well done, good and faithful. But no one believed, but you preached. That's all that matters. Let's pray.